Wow, it is nice to be with you again here at Bridgeway. Thank you very much. Uh, welcome today. Uh, it's nice to see you guys here. I'm so honored to be here to pinch hit for Lance, and uh, I hope we'll have a great time together this morning while we're here together. Um, does anyone here know when the first atomic bomb was dropped? Yeah. Wasn't it Hiroshima? Wasn't it Nagasaki? No, it wasn't in Mexico. <laughs> It was when Jesus dropped these words on the listeners that were listening to him during the Sermon on the Mount, and he said these words, For I tell you, unless the righteousness, your righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let those words sink in for just a moment. Unless your righteousness, your personal righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the popular conception in Jesus' day is that the Pharisees and the religious uh, elite, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, they were like the rock stars of spirituality. When people would look at them and the way that they tried to keep the Old Testament law, their commitment to it, to the Torah, to the, to the commandments, the way that they tried to live it out, the way that they were so detailed in everything that they did, when everyone looked at them, they just looked at them and thought, oh my gosh, those are the people that really know what it's like to be connected to God. Those are the people who are spiritual. Those are the people who have it all together. And of course, the Pharisees loved that. It was a great thing. But Jesus blows everybody away when he says these words to his listeners. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just to emphasize it, he uses the Greek term, the double negative, ume, never. Just not, not just a not, but never enter the kingdom of heaven. And his listeners had to be looking around saying, are you kidding me? What? I mean, to, to be more spiritual than those guys? Impossible. But Jesus basically says, yep, buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to raise the bar here on what this is going to be all about. This week, we're going to be encountering some of the most mind-bending teaching of Jesus. It's teaching that most people would say and nod their heads at, and, oh, sure, yes, yes, even people who are followers of Jesus. But it's teaching that if you really were to follow it, it's so radical, so unbelievably difficult, that it's some of the hardest words for us to apply to our lives. And, and by the way, in this particular uh, uh, message series, as you're going through this synoptic gospel study, these blended studies, um, one of the ways that you look at the Sermon on the Mount and our tendency oftentimes is to look at the Sermon on the Mount as a, a, a prescriptive kind of uh, uh, idea of what Christianity should be. Like, you need to strive to do this, you need to strive to do that, you need to strive to be this way, you need to strive to react this way. But actually, I'd like to suggest that, that we should probably look at it descriptively. That it's not an idea of Jesus saying there's a new kind of law out here and you have to meet these higher demands... But in fact, it is descriptive of what life is like for people who have decided they are going to live their lives under the personal leadership of Jesus. Who are going to allow him to be that person that is so central, so integrating, so coordinating to everything that they do in life that, that it starts to become more natural. It is really a description of life in the kingdom of God. And as we begin to look at this, the next section that we're going to look at today is going to focus um, on what flows out of these verses in chapter 5, verse 20. This is the controlling verse. And I want to unpack for you some of the things that Jesus begins to teach on in this particular section. We're going to address three different subjects in two kind of long extended passages. And they all deal with this subject. So just get this down right away. They all deal with 
how we deal with difficult people in our lives. There's a general rule of thumb, isn't there? Here's what it is. People are messy. True? People are really messy. All kinds of human relationships are messy. And we have all different kinds of people and all different kinds of relationships to us within our lives. And learning how to deal with them is one of the great challenges that we have in learning to live under the leadership of Jesus. So one person who's been really helpful for me in beginning to think through, okay, so who are are all these people in my life? And maybe you'll recognize some of these in your own life. I'm going to have them up here on the screen, and we'll designate them this way. We'll talk about people who are the VEPs of our lives. These are the very energizing people. These are the people we love to be around. You, You may be thinking of a couple of names or two. We love being around these people. When we're around them, our spirits soar. They energize us. We just love being around these energizing kinds of people. And then there are VIPs. These are the very important people. They're also energizing to us, but uh, they share our passion. All right? The energizing person kind of ignites our passion, but the important people, they share our passion with us. They're participants in it with us. They may be coworkers, family members, People that, that just, they love what we are about, they love what we do, they like us. They're people who are uh, the VIPs. And then they're the VTPs. These are the very trainable people. Okay? These are the people that we are probably their VEP. We energize them. They're the recipients of our passion and who we are as an, as an individual. And, and, and they're really good people to be around. I mean, we enjoy investing in those people. And a lot of times they are the recipients of who we are in that process. And then they're the very nice people. They're people who, well, they enjoy our passion, but they have no real commitment to it. I mean, they like us maybe if we're nice to them, but if we're not nice to them, they don't like us very much. They are people who, you know, are kind of on the bandwagon a little bit with us, and they're nice people to have around, and they're somewhat nice to be around, but they really don't feed much into our lives at all. You may be thinking of some names of people like that in your life. And then there are people we call the VDPs. They're the very demanding people. They drain our passion. They are the people that oftentimes are needy. Um, They're always wanting something from us. Uh, They're the people that that come around us, and you know how they sometimes glom onto you, and and you're kind of like, oh, you know, I just want to get away, and I just want to go to the movies, but they're they're talking to me, and this kind of thing. And and they tell you sometimes the most inane things, and they're running through their family history with you and their legacy, and you're just like, oh, okay, all right. You know, and and you're trying to be nice, but you can tell they're just draining this out of you, right? And then the final group of people are what I'm going to call the V-E-V people, little V. These are the very evil people. (laughs) Speaks for itself. It speaks for itself. Now, it's no secret that our satisfaction in life is largely dependent upon our relational health. You ask anybody, you look at any study, they will tell you that that the the, um, quotient of life satisfaction really hinges upon how we relate and keep our relationships around us healthy. And in these relationships that we have, it's very challenging, especially with difficult people and, of course, evil people, But even the VEPs, VIPs, the VNPs, and the VTPs can sometimes be challenging for us. And if we really want to enjoy life, if we really want to to, to get the most out of it, if we really want to be able to walk that path, then learning the critical skills of dealing with people in our lives is very, very, very important.
And so I want to encourage you that we're going to dig into a section this morning that really gives us some ideas about how to do this. So if you want to turn your, your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And let's dig into the section, all right? It's the first passage that we're going to be looking at. Jesus is going to use a formula. You may, if you've studied the Sermon on the Mount, you know this. It's a formula that says, you have heard that it was said, and then Jesus will follow that up with a counter idea, but I say to you, and literally in the Greek, it's I myself say to you. You've heard that it was said, you know, to the the men of old or to the people of old, but I say to you. And then right away in Matthew 5, 21, we see that very thing. Read along with me. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus picks up the Old Testament saying, the commandment, the sixth commandment about murder. You shall not murder, okay? And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But now Jesus will begin to raise the bar on this a little bit. Look at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus puts his finger squarely on the root issue behind murder. And he says, here's what it is. It's anger. Toxic anger. That is what is underneath. If if, if you didn't have any laws, if there were no societal conventions against murder, for the most part, if we were really, really, really angry with someone, it would simply extend itself into taking their lives. We try to figure out ways to do it. I mean, it happens all the time today, even with those. But you removed all those things, and what you would begin to get is a, a society built on chaos and rampant anger. Now, here's one thing. I want to give you several observations about this. One, okay, Jesus is not saying that we can't feel anger. That's not what he's saying here. Okay, Jesus uses something in the Greek language called a substantival participle. The one who is angering. All right? The one who is angering. And what he's talking about is holding on to anger. It's very natural for us to feel anger when we've been hurt, when someone has done something to us, when they've offended us. It's okay to feel it. And in fact, we're going to feel it. There's almost no way to stop it. But Jesus is saying that there's a problem when you start nursing that and you start running it back over in your mind and you hold on to it and you keep it and you try to kind of keep it going. Something breaks inside of us, God tells us, when those kinds of things happen. And when we have anger running loose, it's not fun. When, it's, when we're holding on to it, it's not fun. Jesus traces the origin of this to this toxic anger. And it's not just visible anger I want you to notice. It's not just the feeling of anger. This extends to our very thoughts, our drives, our motivations, even our words. So let me ask you something this morning. Have you ever called anyone stupid? Anyone ever called anyone, you know, a moron, fat, ugly? Have you ever thought about it? And Jesus, you can see, is beginning to raise the bar on what this actually means. Okay. See, I, I don't know if you, you you understand this, but there's more than one way to kill somebody. You can assassinate someone's reputation. You can slaughter their character. You can savage their self-image. You can tear them down. You can break them down. It doesn't take physically doing it. We do it with our words, and we do it with the way we treat them. We do it with our thoughts, because the thoughts will reflect on our actions. Murder's not just about what we physically do to people. 
But we can hold people down. We can keep them down. We can ruin them. Jesus uses two words here. He says, have you ever said to someone, you fool? Okay, the word here is more, means moron. Or the Aramaic term racha, which means blockhead. Right? You ever called someone that? And to us it seems fairly, you know, benign. Uh, you know, blockhead, it doesn't sound bad. I and mean, they say it to Charlie Brown all the time. But look at Charlie Brown. <laughs> He's a wreck. Right? Jesus simply says this. This is serious stuff. The way that you speak about people and the way that you treat people is very serious stuff. And in the rest of the section, Jesus is going to go on to talk about and propose for us a different pathway. Look at verse 23. So if you are offering your gift there at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you'll be put into prison. For truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus points us to a different path when he says, when, there are, when you're at odds with someone or they're at odds with you, he's saying, work it out. Resolve it. Figure out a way to reconcile it with this person. Try to work at that relationship. And I know for some of us it feels like, oh, do I have to do that kind of stuff? But actually, the payoff is huge. When I was in high school, I played uh, sports, played baseball, and um, we had this, this kid. Uh, his name was Bob. And Bob was probably today what you'd call autistic a little bit. All right? Not completely. He was very high-functioning. Okay, maybe had a little Asperger's or whatever, but he had these ticks and things. And of course, all of us guys that were in the gym, that was the days when you still had PE and had lockers and dressed out, those kind of things. And, uh, and Bob became our target. We, we, and to this day, I'm so ashamed, but we just hassled him and we bugged him. We snapped him with towels and we, you know, chided him about his underwear and we did all, we just did, we did the whole gamut. For a whole year, okay. just during my senior year. And, uh, and I graduated. And I wasn't a believer at that time. I was not a follower of Jesus. Well, after that, I became a follower of Jesus. And I'll never forget one day in my church seeing Bob walk through the door. And right then, it hit me. I was like, oh, my goodness. And I'll never forget sitting down with Bob and saying, Bob... I want to tell you something. I know that you know who I am, and I remember what we did to you, and I know you'll never forget it, but I said it was absolutely and completely wrong. There's no way to excuse how we treated you. And I said, I just want to ask if you will forgive us. And not just forgive us, but I said, I really want to ask you if you'll forgive me because I was part of that. And I remember him saying that, yeah, he would forgive us. But it was fascinating to watch what happened in that relationship. I don't know if Bob actually harbored anything against me. But I know that I had harbored some stuff. And I know that I was completely guilty for it. One of the great gifts that God gives us is this thing called the gift of of a clear conscience. And when we've wronged someone, or someone has wronged us, to bring those two parties together to resolve it, is what Jesus would prize the most in life. It's what he'd want to see happen. So if there's a way to do that, he'd say, I want you to work toward that. 
because it is very, very important. And to summarize this whole section, I'd say this, and this is the first, if you like filling in the blanks on your outline, here you go, all right? Don't get mad. Or literally, I would say this, don't stay mad, okay? You're going to get mad, you're going to feel it, but don't stay mad, don't harbor it, nurse it, don't keep it going within your heart. Begin to work at how you can resolve what's going on. Now, we're going to fast forward to the next passage. And we're going to bypass go all the way to verse 38. We're going to bypass Jesus' teaching on lust, his teaching on divorce, and his teaching on oaths. And we're going to look at another section that Jesus is going to talk about. In 1993, uh, a California courtroom was absolutely shocked when Ellie Nestler, the mother of a boy who had apparently uh, uh, been uh, abused by her teenage son had been abused by uh, a man in a court and was being led to the witness stand when she pulled out a handgun and pumped five bullets into the head and the neck of her son's accused molester. Some people looked at Ellie Nestor and they said, well, man, she's a folk hero. And they loved that she, she got that kind of payback. Other people looked at her and said, she's just like a, a wacko vigilante. But whatever you think of her, whichever way you may think of her, it highlights something that's in us that we have a propensity towards, and that's retaliation and revenge. My dad used to have a saying. Some of you have heard it. Some of you know it. Don't get mad. Just get even. So let's look at this for a moment. All right? Jesus is going to talk about this very subject of retaliation and revenge. You have heard that it was said to those of old, that is, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We have this embedded default mechanism inside of all of us. And it simply says this. If someone hurts you, if someone does something to you, get them back, right? Story is told of a guy who was driving to work very, very quickly. He was on his way. He was going over the speed limit, and all of a sudden he sees the blue lights flashing in the background. Policeman pulls him over, starts talking to him about this, and the guy, you know, he, he just, he'd had it. He just, he, he kind of looked at the officer and said, officers, please, he said, um, I, I don't, I'm unemployed right now. I don't really have the money uh, to, to really do this. He goes, I, I know I was breaking the speed. I'll, I'll never do it again. Is there any, any, any way you can cut me a break? And the officer just looked at him and said, were you going over the speed limit? He said, yeah. He wrote out the ticket, handed it to him, said, have a nice day. Fast forward to the next week at a local recreational softball game. And the guy who was the driver of the car is the umpire. <laughs> and up steps the officer to the plate. And he recognizes him. He sees him and he's like, oh. He walks him and he goes, so how'd that ticket thing go? And the guy said, swing at everything. <laughs> we want to pay, we want payback. When someone does something to us, it's our natural reaction. We would love to see them get theirs in return, right? And the roots of this go all the way back in the Old Testament, back to a man named Lamech in Genesis chapter 4. I don't know if you remember the story, but Lamech um, has two wives. In chapter 4, verse 19, it says, Lamech took two wives. And then if you fast forward to verse 23, it says this, Lamech says to his wives, and now he gives a, a little poem, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. And this, of course, became the philosophy of the human race, Right? Crush your enemies, help your friends. Right? Remember in Conan the Barbarian, 
where Conan paraphrases Genghis Khan's words and says this, what is best in life? What is best in life is to crush your enemies, to see them driven before your eyes and to hear the lamentations of their women. Crush your enemies. Help your friends, but crush your enemies. This promoted something that we call unrestricted payback. So if someone does something to you, there are no limitations on what you can do back to them, correct? And you guys know how this works. Two siblings are sitting in the back of a car, boy and a girl, and he nudges her with his leg. And so she socks him in the arm. He pulls her hair. He elbows her really hard and goes all the way over. She gouges his eyes. He puts her in an arm bar. The whole thing just escalates, right? I'm going to get you back even worse because we think if we do it worse, then it's going to stop the, the, the behavior. If I can just get them back, it'll stop the behavior. But it never does. And this became the philosophy of the ancient cultures. And then along came the Old Testament. The Old Testament introduced something called an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, or what the Romans called lex talonis, tit for tat. You get me, I get you back. And it did several things. It limited the scope of the punishment that could be exacted back. It limited the agent of the punishment because it had to be the victim. It could not be other people or other family members or other you know, things like that. And it took it out of the hands, actually, of the individual and put it in the hands of the state. It was much better. But it still got twisted to somehow become a rationale for it's okay to pay people back for what they've done to you. And then along came Jesus. And he begins to raise the bar. Look at verse 39. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Are you kidding me? What? Don't resist the one who is evil? You guys, you understand this. You're driving your car. You, you, you make maybe a dumb move. You didn't look right. And you kind of go into the other lane. You cut somebody off. They buzz by you. They give a gesture of some kind of gesture, you know, and then inside of you, what happens? Your blood starts to boil a little bit, you know, you get a little red in the face, you feel your blood, blood pressure building, voices in your head are saying, Rocky, 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 you want to let them have it, but Jesus raises the bar even more at this place, and now if you like to fill in the blanks, here's the next principle, don't get even. Don't get mad or stay mad, but also do not get even either. And Jesus now promotes an outrageous strategy. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now let me give you a little caution here. I don't think that Jesus is addressing in this particular issue or this particular passage subjects like war, the use of legitimate force to stop an evil. Those are not things that are in the purview of this particular passage, and I think we're going to see that in just a minute. He's not suggesting that, um, that those things are always all bad, though I want to be real careful in how I particularly suggest that. Jesus is actually addressing something very, very different, and he gives four many illustrations to us, starting in verse 39. The first one is the slap on the cheek, which I know we all have looked at, but if you really think about this for a moment, this slap was really um, 
a slap of humiliation. It wasn't that you're being uh, attacked by someone or you have, need to respond, to respond in self-defense. Jesus isn't talking about that. Notice this, if anyone slaps you on the which cheek? Right cheek. And in a culture where people would be predominantly right-handed, how would that work? It's probably a backhand slap. It's a slap of humiliation. This was not something in which you're being attacked. It was someone who is dissing you. Someone who's humiliating you. The next one in verse 40, if someone wants to seize your cloak, and by the way, the word seize here has legal connotation, so it's the idea of you're being sued by somebody. They want to take your tunic. Well, if they're going to do that, then give them your cloak also. Verse 41 is about the political right that the Romans had to commandeer individuals in that uh, ancient Jewish culture. So if you were walking along and uh, some Jewish, uh, excuse me, some Roman soldier came up to you and they said, hey, listen, I want you to carry my luggage. I'm commandeering you right now. Then you would have to actually pick up his luggage. He He had a political right as the ruling force to ask that of you. And then in verse 42, there's always the moral request as well. The one who wants to borrow from you. Give to the one who, wants to, who asks from you or begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So in all of these things, Jesus is not talking about war or self-defense or the fact that you're being attacked or you need to protect someone. That's not what's at, in view here. But what is the point? And here's the point, and it's the biggest point that we're going to get to um, as we're here together. Here's the point. The exact polar opposite. Jesus pushes the envelope and he says, I want you to extend irrational love to everybody. I want you to extend irrational love to everybody. Did you notice that in the passage? Jesus is not just asking us, and this goes far beyond not crushing your enemies. It goes far beyond tit for tat or paying someone back. It goes far beyond even passive non-resistance. Jesus doesn't just say, just let them do it. And by the way, I don't believe Jesus believes that we're supposed to be doormats either. But here's what he is saying. That God has designed us in such a way as followers that we're to extend irrational love to everyone around us. It's the same vibe that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Let me read you those words. Verse 17, he says, Repay nobody evil for evil. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now you're beginning to understand this. I don't want you to just take it. I don't want you to pay them back. I don't want you to crush them. I want you to extend to them practical, tangible, concrete, (laughs) irrational acts of service and love in such a way that you show them there's something different about you. When Paul talks about these burning coals, by the way, you're going to heat burning coals on our head, some of us think to ourselves, if I do good to them, then it'll really get them. But Jesus is using a fairly cultural um, idea in this, or excuse me, Paul is in this passage, where, you know, in those, in those days when you had a fire uh, and it went out, you didn't have matches to light it with. And nobody wanted to sit around and do the stick thing. Or, so you would go to your neighbors and you would borrow coals. All right? 
And if your neighbor was generous, he would give you heaping coals. And of course, they almost always carried them in some kind of bowl on their heads. So your neighbor, would be, if he was generous, he would give you lots of coals. If he was cheap, he'd give you one coal and say, good luck, buddy. Hope you get home in time before it goes out. Jesus is actually talking about being generous. And I know this is hard, but he wants us to be generous to those who have hurt us. What's the effect of this? What's the effect of it? It diffuses the violence. It sucks the air out of evil. It's what happens. It breaks the cycle of violence that happens anytime someone hurts us and then we want to get them back and then they're going to want to get us back more and then we're going to want to get them back more and then they're going to want to get us back more and pretty soon the whole thing just keeps going and going and going and going. But when you meet evil with good, tangible, concrete acts of service and goodness, then it starts to suck the whole air out of it. It pulls out the poison. It diffuses the violence. Martin Luther King, who's maybe one of our famous uh, nonviolent proponents, said these words. He said, The ultimate weakness of violence is that, is, a, is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. Toughness multiplies toughness in the descending spiral of destruction. The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the abyss of annihilation. The effect of this is beautiful. It promotes, it promotes healing. It creates conviction sometimes in the lives of perpetrators. It promotes an inner freedom and control we ourselves desperately want where we are not held captive to the cycle of violence. It just begins to suck all of the fuel out of it. And Jesus goes on to expand on this in the next verse, chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your enemy, excuse me, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. By the way, the last phrase, and hate your enemies, is not in the Old Testament. Only the phrase that's in there is, you shall love your enemies. Excuse me, you shall love your neighbors. And in the context of Leviticus chapter 19, where that is, neighbors are, are kind of defined as fellow Israelites. And so what happened to the Jewish people is they began to look around and they go, well, if it's fellow, fellow Israelites, then anybody else is fair game to hate. I'm only supposed to love my neighbor. So anyone else I can hate. And it just simply became second nature. It's okay to hate your enemies. But Jesus says something else. But I say to you, love your enemies. And catch that right there. Love your enemies. What would that mean? What does it mean to love someone who has hurt you? And Jesus, of course, uses the term agape here. And, you know, if you're not a, a, a Greek scholar, I, I understand that. Many of you know the four different words for love. Phileo, which is a nice, kind of warm, fuzzy love. We love people because like, we like them and they like us. Okay, there's eros, which is a sexual love. There's storge, which is family kind of love. But this kind of love, agape, was not considered by the Greeks to be the highest form of love. They didn't, they didn't like it. Okay, they liked phileo. They liked being around people who like you and... And, and, and liking those kind of people and them liking you back. And they liked all the warm fuzzy around it. It was agape, the Christians of the New Testament, those who were followers of Jesus, began to exalt to an entirely different height. And Jesus simply uses it here. He says, this is real love. When you love people 
who don't like you, when you love people who hate you, when you love people who are your enemies, when you love those people who are different from you and they don't look like you or talk like you, that's what true love is. It doesn't depend on nice, warm fuzzies or whether they like you or they even do good things to you. It is unconditional love. And it implies everybody. It implies everybody. It is graduate-level love. The highest form of love that you can have. And Jesus begins to contrast it with first-grade love. Look at the next couple of verses. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now the contrast. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, that is, fellow Israelites, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus picks the two loser groups that would be around in the ancient Near Eastern culture that he was in. Tax gatherers and Gentiles. They were the ones that had the big L's on their forehead. They were the losers. And he says, hey, listen, those groups of people, they do that. They love people that like them. They do good things to, to people that they like, people that they have you know, friendly relationships with. They say hi to one another. Big, fat, hairy deal that you do that as Israelites. But then he kind of says this. This graduate level love is not just having nicer thoughts about people. He said it is, it is reaching out to them in concrete, tangible, practical, real life kinds of ways and why this graduate level love let me just give you three reasons okay the first one is it does begin to suck that air out of evil i mean it really does pull the air out of it secondly it represents god accurately did you notice those words here but i say to you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you so that you might catch that word so that here's the purpose statement so that you might be sons of your father who is in heaven so that you might be sons you're representing Father. And finally, okay, he says that it distinguishes us from everybody else. Even Gentiles and tax gatherers do that. But when you love your enemies, it sets you apart in a very powerful way. It makes you different. It distinguishes you from everybody else in the world. And one final thing that it does, it actually distances us from violence. Because when we get hurt and we want to pay somebody back and the cycle begins to start, we get caught up in the flow oftentimes of what happens with that, right? And we just get caught up in the flow of it. But when you love your enemies, you stop getting caught up in the flow of it. You don't get overwhelmed by it. And there's a sense of freedom and power and control that becomes yours because you are living under the personal leadership of Jesus. That's why it is so effective. So, we got to live this out, right? And this is the hard part. It's nice to talk about in theory. Any of us can stand up here just like me and say, we need to do this. This is how Jesus says we should respond. So, let me give you some suggestions and, and, and a couple of things that will probably be important for you to know. One, I guarantee you won't feel like this. I guarantee it. Do not wait around for good feelings. It's not going to happen. I'll never forget when I first became a Christian, we were in a, a guys' recreational um, flag football league. 
And uh, we had a, a, a team from our church, a lot of the guys that were athletic, we, we entered this rec league. And uh, in the rec league were all these other kinds of teams. Well, we did pretty well in the rec league, and we came up to the championship game. And it was against the guys from the Mad Dog Saloon. <clears throat> and so we went out and played, you know, Sunday afternoon. And there's nothing like, you know, like kind of getting down into a three-point stance across the line from an inebriated construction worker um, who just wants to tear your head off in a flag football game. And, um, and these guys did everything dirty in the book. I mean, they slugged us, they hit us, they did. And, and I remember coming back to the huddle one time and I said, ah, I said, if it wasn't for Jesus, I wouldn't take this. <laughs> right? You're never going to feel like it. I guarantee you. But you can act your way into it because of who Jesus is. So let me offer you some suggestions here. You can take whatever's uh, applicable for you. If something strikes you, great. Hopefully God speaks to you. Um, I want you to do something on your program. I want you to write down one or two names. Real quick, one or two names. Because my guess is this. As we've been going through the message, you've been sitting there going, Fred. Sally, whatever God's been speaking, just write a, write a name or two down that you've been thinking. Someone who's hurt you, someone that you've really struggled with, someone that you want to get back, all right? And then let me just share a few things. One, you have got to draw a line in the sand. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus, if you are going to truly follow Jesus, then you're going to have to draw a line in the sand and say to yourself, I'm going to follow Jesus in this. Far too often what we want to do is we want to follow Jesus when everything is really easy and when everything's really good and it doesn't cost us anything. But once it starts costing us, then we're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't know. And we find ways to rationalize and we get out of it. It happens. It happens to all of us. It happens to me all the time. But there's a part where you have to draw a line in the sand and say to yourself, am I going to follow Jesus with this or not? And I realize that in an audience this size, there might be many of you here, maybe you have never, ever bowed your heart and your life to Jesus. And you'll listen to this and you'll say, this does not make sense to me. And I, I get it. We all understand that. But something happens to you when Jesus enters your life. It makes you different. Another thing, explore creative options. You do have creative options. Okay? You do not have to stay in relationship with people like, uh, that are demanding or evil. Okay? You can remove yourself from those situations. You don't have to be their uh, BFF. You, know? you don't have to... You know, Put them on Facebook or, you know, whatever you, you might do, okay? This doesn't mean you have to be around them all the time. I and mean, there's oftentimes people who have heard us that we need to make sure we stay a safe, a safe, stay a safe distance from, okay? So cre creatively explore options that are part of this if you're in a relationship with someone who's difficult, okay? There are oftentimes even legal recourses if, that's, if it's that serious at times, right? But thirdly, literally pray. Pray for them. And don't just pray that they would get theirs, okay? <laughs> Eugene Peterson used to say this, before we can love our enemies, we have to pray through our hatreds. And it's a good thing. Bring that to God. Bring that to God and say, God, I hate this person. I don't want to be around them. I want to get them back. I want to do this to them. I, I want them to get payback. But don't just pray about them. Begin to pray for them. This may not happen automatically, and I've been in situations where it took me months before I could begin to genuinely say, I want to pray for the good of this person. But once you begin doing that, 
it changes how you see them. And that is a shift that is powerful in helping us learn how to love those who have hurt us. Redirect your drives for payback into life-giving kinds of things. Put it into the drive to fight for good, for justice, for righteousness. Use the drive that you would give to violence in terms of payback. Redirect that and put it into justice and righteousness and goodness. Reach out in tangible life-giving ways. And then cut yourself some slack. You're not going to get it all right. You're going to have some setbacks. There are times you're going to you know, hope they go bald and get fat. and you know, This is going to happen. Don't settle in on it. All right? And finally, live for the end game. Live for the end game. And here's the end game. And I don't know how to phrase this to you. This may be a whole shift in perspective for you. What are we trying to do here as followers of Jesus? God is asking us in the kingdom of heaven to create a new world. He's asking you and I to be building blocks of a new kind of world under the personal leadership of Jesus. We are trying to create something that is different from the world that we live in right now. And the end game, we always forget. It's kind of like when you're in driver's training and you first start driving. All you can, I mean, you're just looking right here. You're like, uh, 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 stand between the lines. And then they tell you, just look at the horizon. And when you look at the horizon, magically, you steer better. You're more relaxed. You don't need not going back and forth and everything. There's an end game here. You and I are being asked to create a new world, a new, a new earth where righteousness dwells. And we have to reframe the purpose of who we are in creating this new world. We are fighting for a different outcome than just not being hurt, uh, having people treat us the way that we want them to treat us. We are fighting for a different outcome. And here's the question. I see men and women who leave this life in the United States to serve their country. They're willing to be a casualty of war. They're willing to give up their life for the patriotic ideals of our country, for your freedom and my, for my freedom. And it would seem to me in some way, shape, or form, and this is brand new for me, I'm still trying to flesh this out for me, but maybe it will cost me my life. A few years ago, we had the nickel mine shooting in Pennsylvania, and uh, Five uh, beautiful young Amish girls were killed when a man named Charles Roberts locked himself in their school, allowed the boys to leave, and a couple of pregnant teachers kept ten girls in the room. And uh, you remember the standoff that occurred and how the Amish community responded to this. But it was Barbie Fisher and her uh, excuse me, Marion Fisher, Fisher and her sister Barbie that won the day. They were inside the building. And when he began to get very agitated and the standoff looked like it was going to really go sideways, she was the one who stood up and she said, shoot me first and let the other ones go. And he did. He shot her. And the next person up was her sister who stood to her feet, Barbie, and said, me next. And he shot her. Luckily, she survived. But the world was shocked when that Amish community responded to the heinous evil that was created upon them, and they began to respond not only with forgiveness, but they began to raise money for the perpetrator's family. 
They began to pay back. They began to take meals over to the family's house. And a midwife who delivered five of those girls through their birthing process did exactly the same thing. You're going to say it's not possible. Yes, it is. It is possible to do this. You're going to say this is totally unrealistic. No, it's not. And yes, it could cost us our lives. It could cost us possessions. And every situation, circumstance is different, so you can't put this on our one-size-fits-all thing. But when you have grace, and that's what this midwife said, this is impossible unless you have Jesus in your life. Because the grace that flows from that allows you to do things you could not humanly possibly do. And you know, we have this, this op- opportunity. We can, we can build bridges or we can build walls, Right? We are good at building walls. Do you know that the only wall that you can see from outer space, the only human edifice you can see from outer space is the Great Wall of China? It's the only thing you can see, this wall that we have created to keep people out. But Jesus suggests this, I want you to build bridges. And I want to encourage you, build bridges with your enemies, with those who have hurt you. That will take a lot of soul-searching. It will take a lot of prayer. It will take a lot of time. But we are creating a new world. And Jesus asked us to be the advanced guard of this new world. And man, it's easy for me to just stand up here and say, say it to you, but I will have to live it out in my own life too. I haven't always done it well, but I would like to do better. I hope that you will too. So I want to give you a closing challenge. Remember the one or two names I had you write down? Fred, Sally, somebody in your life. Just think, this week, what is one thing I could do? What's one thing that I could do to extend irrational love to them? Some kind of practical way. I don't know what it will be for you. But I do believe this, that God is powerful in you. I mean, I sat and listened to us all worship, man. It's awesome. And he can do great things through every single one of us. Would you stand and I want to pray for you. All right? Let's pray together. Father, we want to offer ourselves to you in a fresh new way today. And Jesus, thank you that you came and you did this for us while we were enemies, while we spit at you, while we would have been the people pummeling you with our hands and our fists, that you died for us. We... We'll never understand it. We will never know what that's like. But we taste it a little bit sometimes in this life with people who are difficult to handle. And Jesus, thank you for offering us a pathway that allows us to live under you and to know that our souls are not at risk ever, ever for anything because we belong to you. And because of that, You would enable us to be the people that create this new world. We give ourselves to you and we thank you for this time here today. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. Dismissed.